Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com, to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. My guest today is Ryan Nissen, founder of Elevate Brands. Elevate Brands buys consumer-leading Amazon FBA brands and elevates them to their full potential. This is a little bit of a different episode, as the focus here is creating and scaling brands on Amazon and how you can leverage Amazon across other channels. Without further ado, here's Ryan. Ryan, thank you so much for your time. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Really good to be here. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for coming on the show. So I kind of poked around and looked at your resume and I saw that you were in life insurance and commodities trading. What was your attraction to e-commerce and and Amazon and and what you're currently doing? You know, when I left the commodities trading world, that was middle of 2016. And then, you know, I moved, I was based in Indonesia. I was living in Southeast Asia for eight years and I moved to the US and I was just exploring, you know, different industries, right? I was looking for either a business to buy or a business to start and I wasn't quite sure what it would be. And I was very specific about picking an industry that was sort of on the up and up, right? And I wanted to join in an industry that was specifically in kind of, not at the very sort of initial stage of the growth of that industry, but sometime in the early stages, like kind of early teens or younger, right? That was kind of the stage I was looking for. And e-commerce kind of fit that criteria. You know, specifically Amazon was interesting to me because I went to a number of conferences in those early couple of months that I was looking for something. And, you know, an Amazon conference, I went to a couple of them. And what I found really interesting was that there was all these very fragmented sellers who were doing really well, but were, you know, fairly what you would call like unsophisticated sort of mom and pop type operators with like one or two solo, like solopreneur, duopreneurs with maybe a couple of virtual assistants in the Philippines or whatever it was. And, and I found like a noticeable lack of sort of sophisticated capital in the space. Like there were not many sort of M&A people or private equity people at these conferences, for example. And and I just thought that would be a huge opportunity. E-commerce was growing and I couldn't see any way that e-commerce, say in 10 years, would be sort of in any way the same or lower than where it was in 2016, right? Like to me, it was obvious it was growing, right? It was super obvious and it was just a question of, you know, figuring out which wave to surf and figuring out how to build a surfboard to, to, to ride it. I understand why you thought about Amazon and focus maybe on FBA companies to acquire. I'm just curious, I've also spoken to companies and individuals that are interested in Shopify companies and possibly acquiring Shopify. What are some of like the attributes or the reason why specifically you've chosen to really target Amazon brands? Yeah. So, well, first of all, I started in the Amazon space, right? So myself personally, and what you would call, let's say, an expert on Amazon, less so on Shopify. We have people on the team today who are super strong on on building brands in general off Amazon. But in terms of how this evolved, my journey, you know, when you look back, it's always interesting, the sort of trail of breadcrumbs that you've left. Well, looking at it from back to front, I started on Amazon because I thought that would be a good opportunity. Initially, we started as a reseller. When I started the business 2017 to 2019, we were focused primarily on reselling other brands. So, and they were big brands, you know, a Reebok and Adidas and New Balance and Nikes. And that was the kind of stuff we were reselling. 
on Amazon. And so I developed an expertise together with my business partner in doing all things Amazon. And so like the natural place when you started thinking about acquiring businesses, the natural place for us to start was Amazon, right? And so, you know, it would make no sense for us to then go buy a Shopify store because first of all, the opportunity to buy businesses on Amazon, we thought was much larger and we had the expertise. So that was an obvious place to start. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. How do you go about building a brand on Amazon, of course, because when I think of, of Amazon, you obviously have that intent there, the user intent there, since a large that is driven by the search, but you're also competing with so many different other listings. So what's that kind of process like to you when you're thinking about that? Yeah, so you're right that you can be successful on Amazon and not have a brand. And one of the things we talk about is, well, how do you know whether you have a brand or not? Well, if you cease to exist, would anyone miss you? Or would the consumers all just go to the very next listing and buy their stuff? Do you know what I mean? And like one of the things we've even discussed is, well, like if you had a store on Shopify and you had a store on Amazon, okay, and hypothetically you turned off your Amazon store, you should see your sales on Shopify spike. And then you would know you have a brand because people are specifically looking for you. Whereas if someone just comes in on Amazon and buys the next guy or the third best guy or whatever, no one cares who you are, then, you know, it's more of a label than a brand. So what we do is we take a portfolio approach to buying these businesses, some of them will truly stay as labels on Amazon and will probably not amount to any great big brand. Uh, and others, we, we really do try and turn them into a brand in the sense that we try to take them off Amazon, we build a community around them, we, you know, we do social, we do all sorts of things. And, you know, we've brought on some people on the team specifically, who are sort of world class branding people, and who didn't come from the Amazon. We've got enough Amazon experts and we've also now brought on some world-class branding people. So with this being said, because with Amazon, for example, you're not able to collect emails, you're not able to collect a data. I know you, you, know you talked about social media and push on social media. What are some of the other ways when you start with a company that is on Amazon and you're really trying to figure out, okay, what does a D2C strategy look like, right? Or what does... Can we go into retail eventually? What does that look like? What's your decision-making process when you're kind of thinking about these things and how to get the brand or company off Amazon? Yeah, so first I'll preface that by saying we are in the early stages of focusing on off Amazon strategy, right? It's still very early stages. By far, our primary focus has been Amazon to this point. So, you know, 90% plus of our business today is still on Amazon and that percentage will continue to increase. So, you know, when we're looking at a brand, you know, our brand strategists look at certain uh, factors and they say, well, you know, do we think that this brand would excel off of Amazon? So, for example, we have a hardware tool and it's the most unsexy, boring product in the world. It's a vice jaw. I mean, if you know what that is, right, you use it to put in between a vice or it protects. It's like a nylon product and there's nothing sexy about it. That will probably never be a global brand that people are going to talk about it, you know, as a household name. Whereas we have other products that, you know, we have a pretty cool beach tent, for example, or we have some home decor products, or we have some wine products, or we have a garden seed uh, business for, um, for bonsai trees. You know, there's a whole bunch of different products that we do think could become real brands and where you could sort of, with a hub and spoke approach, add new SKUs around the core SKU to build out that as not just a single SKU. Because of course, if it's a single SKU, it's difficult to turn that into a real brand. You want to build multiple SKUs. And so when we're looking at these businesses, we kind of make a decision. This bucket here we think is something we can really build and others we can't. And so 
It's looking at the competitive dynamics. Do we have a patent, for example? You know, can we build additional SKUs? All of those things factor into our decision. And it's an evolving process of, of figuring that out. That makes a lot of sense. I'd love to also dive deeper on that in terms of when a brand comes to you and might be looking for an acquisition for, for you to acquire them um, and interested. Like, walk me through a little bit of your decision making process and how you actually conduct due diligence on these Amazon brands and where you think after acquisition. Um, if you do acquire, where you could also like provide value and be able to obviously perform quite well with them. Yeah. So first of all, in terms of what we look for, you know, when we're looking at a business, we will look at, first of all, if it's a great quality product, because if it's a shitty product, you know, no amount of lipstick is really going to help it be a sustainable long-term business. And so we look for great products, first of all. So if it's got a 4.8 star, for example, that's something that we love. The other thing we'll look for is, you know, how many reviews it has. Right. So, I mean, you know, something that has 10,000 reviews is far more attractive than something that has 100 reviews. Would we still buy something with 100 reviews? Eh, maybe, but probably not. Right. Typically, we're looking for something that is one of the dominant products in its category, if not the dominant, you know, certainly on the top page or the top half of the first page. Ideally, you'd want to see something that has a high degree of market share. So we use various tools to assess, you know, the competitive landscape. And if, if something has dominant market share, um, and share a voice on Amazon, you know, that's going to be attractive to us. And none of these things are necessarily deal breakers. I mean, we have a scorecard and we rank each of these things and weight each of these things differently. But these are the big ones that I'm telling you about. Does it have a patent? That's very helpful as well. Do we think there's room to optimize it? So, you know, how good is the branding and creative? How good is does the SEO look to us? You know, do they have a video? Uh, what does the supply chain look like? Do we think we can consolidate with another supplier of ours? Is this product selling overseas on Europe or Amazon, Mexico or Canada? And if not, can we take it there, right? And what's the supply chain look like selling it in Europe? So there's all these things that we factor in and we score it. And then at the end of the day, we'll, you know, we'll get out a score and, and you know, we'll compare that score to all the other businesses we look at because, you know, we've now got hundreds and hundreds of businesses we've looked at. And so that's what the process, I mean, there's like a 50-point checklist that we look at when we're evaluating whether to buy something and then we score everything and make a decision on that basis. And then in terms of, to the second half of your question, in terms of what else you can do to optimize the business, you know, there's a whole bunch of levers and that's a much longer checklist. I mean, that that's more like a 500-point checklist, right? Because that covers everything from branding and creative, customer service, SEO and PPC. So there's all these different things that you can do to optimize it. And we'll prioritize them depending on what we think is kind of the low-hanging fruit where we can get the quickest uplift uh, and then go from there. That's all really helpful. I think on your first point, when you talked about customer reviews, I've heard that competitors might leave negative reviews on other products, on their competition. How do you manage in terms of what's kind of real versus what's fake when analyzing these companies? There is a fair amount of what Amazon World calls black hat tactics where competitors can do those kind of things to you and hurt your listing. Um, it's happened to us several times. So we've seen it and we've been there and we've done it. In fact, we've had our Amazon account shut down even for a number of reasons. That had more to do with Amazon's algorithm, but on one occasion, it was there was a bunch of black hat stuff going on. You could look at how long a product's been there for and you know there's all sorts of software tools, for example, that show you the rate of review growth, right? So you can see... If a business has been there and on the second week they got 150 reviews, for example, you would know that that's fake. But to be honest, Amazon will catch that even before you do, right? I mean, that you know, Amazon's algorithms are pretty finely tuned to pick that stuff up and kick those people off. You have to be pretty sophisticated these days to get away with sort of the fake reviews. 
And so we do what we can to test. We check the quality of the product ourselves. Of course, we order everything and check the quality of the products ourselves and make sure that you know it does stack up with what we're reading in the reviews. And then in terms of how you fight that stuff, I mean, we have literally a, a department called Amazon Defense. And so we have people there who fight that. And uh, if we think that you know someone's trying something that is untoward, we open cases and we show Amazon why that is or isn't correct, if that's the case. And the truth is, you know, even if someone gets away with sending you a few bad reviews, if you've got a good enough product, then the good reviews should eventually outweigh that. And so maybe they'll temporarily slow you down, but it's difficult to really kind of kill your listing if you have you know, 10,000, 4.8 star reviews and someone leaves you a couple of bad reviews, it's, it's often not the end of the world. That's a great point. I mean, I'm glad that almost you can trust Amazon to, they, they have a sophisticated algorithm where you don't really have to focus on that so much that actually the reviews might actually reflect the product itself. They're getting better all the time with that stuff, right? What they're not yet great at is there's still a bunch of these, what we call hijackers. Amazon allows multiple people to sell the same brand. Unless you have it gated where no one else is allowed to sell it, uh, which is which is quite difficult to do in many cases. You know, Amazon sometimes will allow other people to come onto your listing and sell this what customers believe to be the same product, but in fact is a fake product. And I learned this lesson years ago. My very first product ever was a salt and pepper shaker. And it was this fantastic product and it, it took off like a rocket. This was early 2017 and it was doing great. And then we got massive attacks from Black Hat and it must have been competitors and it sort of drove that listing from a 4.8 star to literally a 3.8. And, you know, that is enough to really hurt the brand. So anyway, we learned some good lessons in the early days when we were still very small. <laughs> when you're thinking about acquiring, though, I'd imagine that's a huge risk, right? Having these copycats and developing products that aren't the real products and aren't they say, like, how do you think about mitigating that risk? Or are these conversations that you think about when you're looking at companies about, okay, what happens if someone were to copy it? I'd love to kind of learn more about how you think about risk. Today, we have some pretty good relationships now um, within Amazon account, and we have various account managers, and we've learned how to handle these things. So if someone tries it, usually they don't last for more than you know a few hours or maybe a day or something. It's less of a problem than it used to be. So I guess once you become kind of a big fish and you have your relationship with Amazon, you have your own account manager, then these types of problems kind of, you don't have to worry about them as much. Yes. I mean, that and the fact that I don't know if it's so much being a big fish, it's that you've been there and you now know how to solve it. You know exactly what process it doesn't, you know, the first time it took me a couple of weeks to figure out, you know, what's going on here and what do I do? By the time it's happened to you 20 times, you know exactly what to do and you can react super fast and efficiently. Totally. What is your approach to portfolio construction and how do you think about certain categories? Are there certain categories that you spend a lot of time in? Are there others that you don't think would make great business on Amazon or that you kind of leave alone? Or what's your thoughts around that? Yeah. So we get this question actually quite a lot, including from investors, as you might imagine. And it's a great question, right? And for good reason. Our view today is that we are agnostic to category, right? So we think that mastery over the platform is what's critically important and the ability to grow brands in general is what's important and we want to get to scale quickly and by focusing on a specific category here or there doesn't make sense for us today. We would like to figure out organically which categories to focus on as opposed to just picking something and we could use a whole bunch of data to support why we would pick pets, for example, because it's a high demand category then uh uh, then, you know, maybe sports and outdoor, for example. So we could use um, some metrics to decide that, but we don't necessarily have a competitive advantage in pets versus sports and outdoor, right? Not yet anyway. And so 
what we think will happen organically is that over time, we'll find that now as we start to, let's just keep using the same example, as we start to have more businesses that we've bought under the pet category, and let's say we have large email lists on some of those different brands, now we can maybe cross-pollinate and cross-promote some of those products into other customers. And then maybe you get one of those products into a Chewy and, uh, you know, or maybe you get it into Walmart and now you have the relationships and now you can start cross-promoting there. So we just think over time that may start to happen, but we've decided not to make that decision yet. Now, I know you recently fundraised $55 million for your fund, which, I mean, congratulations, that's amazing. Why was that amount the right amount for your fund for Elevate? <laughs> it's a fair question. The amount was enough to kind of get us to the next step. In other words, we wanted to raise an amount of money that could give us sort of three to six months worth of runway, then to be able to kind of continue to prove ourselves, buy several brands, show performance, and then keep growing. If you raise too much upfront, you end up diluting yourself, right? Because as you're raising more debt, you then need to raise more equity, right? Because you want to keep the ratios somewhat in check. And so if you raise too much too soon, let's assume you can raise an unlimited amount of money. Well, you wouldn't want to raise an unlimited amount of money because you're going to dilute too much. So it actually evolved. I mean, it started out as a much smaller facility. It started out as a 20 million facility. And, and during the course of the negotiation of the facility and the Series A, the amounts actually increased, both on the debt and the equity side. Got it. So what's the ideal or realistic return when you are acquiring brand and how many brands are you looking to acquire with your current fundraise? You know, in terms of the number of brands, we were looking to have at least 10, right? Because I mean, before we even raised the Series A, we had several brands. So the idea was to use the Series A to rate, to buy at least 10 brands and maybe even 15, depending on how big they were, and then to show performance. And so, look, from an investor point of view, if you could show 50% growth or even 40% growth, that would probably be successful. And, you know, our standards are far higher than that. And, you know, we've been able to show growth, you know, closer to 100%. That's what we're shooting for is, is sort of in excess of 100% growth post-acquisition in the first year. It's amazing. It's interesting because you're the first investor in Amazon-specific brands I've had on this show. And I'd love to understand a little bit of the multiple and how that kind of works with Amazon-specific brands. Because on the branding side, I've mostly talked to entrepreneurs and, and investors that invest in brands that are already in retail or have their own DTC strategy. I would just, I'm just kind of curious in terms of how it's different maybe for Amazon-focused brands, if you don't mind explaining. First of all, I don't think the multiples are so different for Amazon brands versus non-Amazon brands. Um, up to a point, up to about $2 million of EBITDA, I think the multiples are pretty similar. I'm not an expert. We haven't acquired any businesses on Shopify. But as I understand it, you know, if you're buying a million dollar Shopify business, you're probably valuing that as a multiple of EBITDA. But once you start getting into two, three, four million dollars of EBITDA, now those businesses on Shopify and other platforms start trading as a multiple of revenue, right? Whereas on Amazon, they're still trading at a multiple of, of EBITDA, even as they become slightly bigger. So that's the benefit. The downside, of course, to those Amazon businesses, and maybe there's a reason that they trade the bigger businesses trade at a multiple of, of EBITDA, is that, again, you don't own the customer. It's a huge drawback. It's much more competitive. There's less of a moat on Amazon versus if you had a $4 million EBITDA Shopify business. And so there's more risk. The operational complexity may be higher in terms of fighting things, you know, in terms of those black hat things that I mentioned on Amazon. So, 
And of course, you know, you've got a you've got some concentration risk there with the channel. So I think that's probably the core difference there is the slightly bigger businesses. I'm also curious, I know we spoke a little bit about copycats and other entrepreneurs or quote unquote entrepreneurs copying products, but I'd also love to know there's been quite a few court cases or at least certainly articles about how Amazon maybe leverages or, or uses seller data against sellers, maybe copies and copies successful products themselves. Is this at all a worry or something you have to factor in when you do acquire companies on Amazon? Listen, they're justified in the sense that if Amazon is doing that, they shouldn't be. And so the articles are justified. But I think people overestimate how common it is and how much of a problem it is. It isn't, right? Like it's massively overblown in my opinion. To the contrary, Amazon doesn't get given enough uh, recognition, in my view, for this incredible entrepreneurial machine that they've created, which is the third-party platform. We're making multi-millionaires several times a month, you know, because we're buying a bunch of these businesses every month, and we're making a bunch of uh, entrepreneurs who maybe started out as themselves with a couple of people two years ago and are now selling for multi-million dollar exits, thanks to Amazon. There was over a million new third-party sellers on the platform uh, last year, for example. And, you know, not all of them make it, but many of them certainly make a living and some of them get very wealthy off it. Amazon has pretty strict Chinese wall policies there. I mean, they certainly don't allow their staff to do it. You know, to the extent that one or two people circumvent the restrictions they have and, and get access to that data, you know, that stuff becomes public and that's not good. But Amazon doesn't actively allow that to happen. And it's pretty uncommon. I mean, you know, you do see Amazon competing, right? I mean, but at the same time, if you were to compare Amazon versus the average retailer, the average retailer probably has 20 to 40% of their catalog is private label, right? Whereas Amazon's private label as a percentage of the overall platform is closer to 1%. So if you're selling an office chair and then Amazon Basics pops up with their office chair, yeah, it's probably going to hurt your sales. But it's not going to kill your business. You could go on Amazon now and have a look for an office chair. There are Amazon chairs that I think the last time I checked were at the top of the page. But there are several other third-party sellers who are doing really, really well sitting side-by-side selling against Amazon. And third-party sellers often have maybe not exactly, but much of the same tools that Amazon itself has to grow and optimize that brand. There are many Amazon private label products that are not the best seller in their category. And if Amazon wanted them to be, they could just change the algorithm and make them the top seller. We see it as less of a problem. And the fact that we have a diversified portfolio sort of mitigates that risk even further. Yeah, and also just another benefit of Amazon too, just what thing about tools is of course, they're giving third-party sellers the opportunity to sell FBA and sell Prime, which as someone who buys a lot of products on Amazon, like I click the Prime button always. And so I think that's a huge benefit to third-party sellers to be able to have that offering. If the product is going to be shipped in and come in the same time for the customer, that really does level the playing field, right? It's huge. It's huge because what Amazon's built is just incredible where you could be a third-party seller with, you could have a hundred bucks in your pocket and you could go set up an Amazon store. You could go buy a cheap pair of shoes at a Nike outlet or a Marshalls and put it up for sale on Amazon and get your first sale and then build on that micro success and then go buy a bunch of more stuff and then sell it and then set up a private label brand. And, and you've plugged into the world's most sophisticated, you know, infrastructure, logistics infrastructure to be able to do two day guaranteed shipping anywhere in the country. We used to sell shoes. So a pair of shoes is roughly $5 to send anywhere in the country. Now, when I try and uh, ship that myself from my own warehouse, because occasionally you've had to do that, it's way more expensive. So not only has Amazon taken all the heavy lifting to build out the infrastructure to do it for you, it's actually much cheaper doing it with FBA than it is if I were to do it myself from my warehouse. And you can scale infinitely. I mean, there's no, I can't grow my business big enough that Amazon's going to have a problem shipping and 
that they can't house and I'm going to have to move to a new warehouse because they can't facilitate my existing inventory growth, that's not a problem, right? So they allow you to scale from practically nothing to the moon uh, using their infrastructure, which is, and it's inexpensive and it's amazing. I'd imagine as an investor, it can be tough to pick what brands could be truly sustainable or actually companies that could be become a brand, right? What's that process like in terms of just like kind of getting through the noise and seeing what actually could be a potential for you to actually make a bet on? We have an expression that we like to use and it's not what you do, it's how you do it. So it is competitive and there are you know thousands of options there, but it's a question of how well you can execute. We've now developed the playbook and so we know what levers we can pull and we're pretty damn good at, at pulling those levers now to optimize growth. We've had a couple of brands that went backwards temporarily and usually it's due to supply chain actually. It wasn't really due to anything else, but all of our brands are sort of positive and performing really well. Maybe there's a bit of luck there, but you know, it's execution. And you know, if you've done your due diligence, you looked at the category, you've looked at the competition and you see that you have this particular brand has some kind of moat or some kind of competitive advantage that you can then build on top of, there's no reason it should go backwards, right? I mean, it can happen that some other competitor pops out of nowhere with a price advantage that is far better than yours or has a technological innovation that sort of, that outdoes your product. But at the same time, when we buy a business, we don't just sit on our hands. We're not there to just kind of sit and hold them. We're immediately looking at how can we improve the product? What can we optimize? Can we innovate this? Can we add new SKUs? The basic thing would be like a size and color variant, but it can be far greater than that. It might just be other products in a similar category. So, you know, it's, it's a combination of, of factors and it's just, I guess it's practice and having a robust sort of scoring methodology that allows you to compare one opportunity versus the other. When you acquire a brand and when you think about value add, do you focus on maybe cost cutting, consolidating the supply chain maybe, or does the focus become on increasing revenue and revenue growth, or maybe a bit of a combination of both? Just what's that process like once you've actually acquired a brand? Yeah, look, cost cutting is a factor. It's not the most important factor in our view. It's important to the extent that you can get a competitive advantage against your competitors, right? But in and of itself, if you're just saving 5% or 10% on your bottom line, we've got some brands that within a couple of months have grown 300%, right? And so that to us is where the real juice is. Like that to us is where the real returns come from. Saving 5 or 10% here and there, sure, it's important, but it's not the first thing we look to do. What is one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> Um, okay, a book that inspired me personally. I'm going to say probably Blink, which I think was a really great book because, you know, it teaches you what is gut and what is intuition. Made it a little more concrete that, no, it's based on your life experience and everything you've ever learned and everything you've ever read is what's giving you that sort of indication. And at the end of the day, you know, emotions and instincts are, in my view, like algorithms, like just personal algorithms. By the way, Noah Yuval Harari talks about this in one of his books as well. I think it was maybe Sapiens or maybe Homo Deus, I think it might have been, or could have been 21 Lessons, I'm not sure. He talks about that, you know, these emotions are instincts. And when you're, when, you know, when you're running a business and you're making so many decisions constantly, you don't always have the luxury of going and researching them. And you do have to make some quick decisions sometimes. And it's important to sometimes to make gut decisions, right? I mean, I always like to say like business is, a, is an intellectual sport, not an emotional sport. So you want to try and be intellectual about it. But yeah, I mean, that book I thought was, was great for me. 
And then another book from a, I guess, from a business point of view, there's a lot. <laughs> I mean, picking one is difficult. There's a lot. Uh, I would say, you know, Ray Dalio's Principles was one of the books that I loved because, you know, learning from your mistakes and realizing that you're going to see the same pattern, like your life is a, is a series of events and those events form into, you can fit into buckets and those buckets are repeatable. Uh, the successful people in life are not the ones that don't make mistakes. They're the ones that learn from their mistakes and then don't make them again, right? And unsuccessful people just keep making the same mistakes over and over. And I thought principles, it had some really great like lessons in there. You know, one of the things we'd like to talk about in our business a lot is came from Ray Dalio, which is meaningful work and meaningful relationships, where if you had all the money in the world and you weren't working to add incremental financial value to your life, well, what would you do with all that time? Well, you would, you would want to work on something that was meaningful to you with a group of people where you could have meaningful relationships with those people. There is a million studies out there that, you know, happiness comes from relationships, not from more money. And so, like, we talk about this a bunch that, well, you don't have to wait till you have all the money in the world. You can start doing that today. And ironically, by having great relationships and by working on things that you're passionate about and find meaning in, you will, you know, more likely achieve financial success anyway. So, you know, those are two books that I would say, and, and there's a million others I could mention, but I'll, I'll answer it there. What is the best piece of advice that you've received? So I got a great piece of advice from a gentleman who actually lives, well, I've just moved to Austin, Texas. And so he lives here as well. His name's Keith Cunningham. And what happened was when I was in my previous career, I was thinking about leaving and I wasn't sure. And I was, I was in a really good place and I had a great salary. And one day I started reading some of his books. Someone introduced me to some of his material. I started reading some of his books. And one day I called his office and it was like 7.30. I was based in Jakarta, Indonesia. I got the time change wrong. I thought it was 9.30 in the morning. It was 7.30 in the morning. So I, I called because I wanted him to send me some of his, he had like a bunch of CDs or DVDs or something that I wanted to listen to. And so I called the office and I could hear, I mean, in his voice, because I'd listened to him on YouTube. So he answers the phone. I'm very surprised. So I said, listen, while I'm, while I'm chatting with you, can I ask you a piece of advice? Here I am. I'm not happy with where I am in my business. Um, I'd like to do something different, but I'm not sure. What do you think? So he said to me, look, I'm going to guess that you have stopped learning and progressing in either your personal life or your business life, either, the, either your learning curve and or your financial earnings have either plateaued or gone backwards or slowed down in some way. And I said, yeah, how did you know that? He said, because anytime in my 50-year business career that anyone's ever told me they're unhappy in their career, it's because they've stopped learning and growing. So he said, people in, in our age love to talk about what they're passionate about and following what you're passionate about. And he said, in my experience, when you're learning and growing, you're passionate. And it doesn't matter what you're learning and growing, like what subject it is that you're learning and growing on. As long as you are learning and growing, you will be passionate. And so like that I found so helpful because as I was thinking about what business I should buy or what business I should get into, you know, it was a real burden for me to try and figure out, well, what am I really passionate about? And he kind of lifted the burden and made it as if just pick something. It doesn't matter what you pick, just pick anything and learn and grow. And as you learn and grow, you'll be passionate and you'll figure things out. So that helped me. Like I picked this business and I just started working on this business literally within a few weeks of the search, right? It could have been something completely different. But, you know, we're learning and growing and we have a ton of momentum and I'm feeling very passionate. So I thought that was awesome advice from Keith. I love that because I love the relationship of passion to learning, as you just described, because if you actually tell people and you you actually are learning things and you get excited by it, well, then that also results in you becoming passionate 
in the, on that particular thing. So that's, that's really cool. My final question to you is what's one piece of advice that you have for founders who are building on Amazon? Okay, so a founder who's starting on Amazon, I would say start where you stand, right? And build on micro successes, okay? You know, oftentimes I talk to a seller who's, whether it's a family friend or someone else who's been studying the Amazon world for four months or five months and doing a bunch of courses and trying to figure it out. And what I say to them is just start really small and build on micro successes. So, you know, you could literally, and I used the example earlier, you could literally walk into a, you know, a Nike outlet store, buy a pair of shoes today, stick it up for sale on Amazon and sell one pair of shoes, right? And now you've got one sale. And now you have a, a little bit more confidence today, than, a little bit more confidence than you had before you sold that, that product. And then you could go and buy another few pairs and then go do something. And so just starting small and building on micro successes to me, um, I have found to be a, a very powerful way to, because a very powerful way to achieve big success, because big success is nothing but an accumulation of thousands of micro successes. So that would be my advice to, to someone starting out. If, um, uh, you know, if you're, particularly if you're stuck and you're not sure how to get in or where to start. I love that. Start where you stand. Well, Ryan, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for your time. This has been great. Absolute pleasure. Really, really good chatting with you. And there you have it. It was so much fun having Ryan on the show and learning a lot more about Amazon and the Amazon ecosystem. You can follow him on Twitter at Ryan Nissen. That's R-Y-A-N-G-N-E-S-I-N. I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks for listening, everyone.